namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Taura, ye Sodawanta Bamunjantu Satang. This evening we have this opportunity to reflect on uh, the great teacher Ajahn Chah since this is his uh, birthday and in, and in Thailand at this time at the, his monastery Wat Pa Nong Pa Pong is, they have a annual Sangha meeting where Lung Po Chao's disciples come from all over and meet and, and have, a, have, a, have a Sangha meeting for, for the monks where they discuss issues that arise <coughs> and then the lay people gather and they usually uh, put up their umbrellas under the trees. They have these, like, uh, the bamboo umbrellas with mosquito nets around them and camp out during this week. And then the monks usually give dhammadesanas in the evening. So this is probably what's happening now in Thailand. Of course, in a Buddhist country, births, uh, I think birthdays are fairly, fairly, uh, having celebrating birthdays is kind of new idea. And probably something picked up from the, from the West. Because Ajahn Chah said, why do you want to celebrate a birthday? <laughs> because once you're born, you're, you you know you're in in this for a lifetime of uh, constant irritation, frustration, and whatnot. <coughs> and then he said people would think death is terrible. He said that's liberation. You no, know, it's a way of reflecting and on and ta- challenging our perceptions. And he was very good at that. And at challenging us to to look at things in different ways, because one thing about uh, any culture is that it's set. You get set in a certain pattern of thinking, assumptions, attitudes, prejudices that you you take for granted. And I think I think being the the first foreign monk there. Was was even a, a great advantage when I look back because everything was challenging me. I mean, a whole new culture, a whole new lifestyle. <coughs> and I think what it, what attracted me, what what uh, interested me with Ajahn Chah was his, was his approach. He, He's what I call a very reflective teacher. And before that, I'd been to various other teachers before I met him. In the, in those, this is 1966 when I arrived in Thailand, and and I ordained as a samanera in 1966 for the Vatha. But before that, I visited many teachers that were all well known by expatriate Buddhists living in Bangkok. So the word we get around you, oh this is the best teacher, you've got to go see this one. Or, No, he's no good, this, this other one, he's really the greatest teacher of the time. 
everybody had their strong views and opinions and their favorites. <coughs> and uh, at that time, I was in a state of mind where I was very confused. I found that very, very confusing to be subjected to strong opinions by, by others. So, uh, remember the, and there was also this Mahanikai Tamayut division. Now, the first time I ever heard of Tamayut Mahanikai was when I was uh, teaching at Thomasat University. I was teaching English, and then I, in the afternoon I'd go over to Wat Mahatak and practice meditation. They had this Mahasi Sayadaw technique, you know, where you do everything in measured steps and and it was based on Abhidhamma. So anyway, I, the, uh, the head monk there, uh, who had become quite, he's the one that established Wat Puta Patip. In those days he was called Tanjakun Rajasiddhi Muni. And he died many years ago, but he, the, when you get into these titles and they keep upping it, so he, by the time he died, he was Pratama Maha something or other Muni. <laughs> A very long name that I can never quite remember. <coughs> and but his his translator, there was another monk who translates for me, who could speak English, and and uh, he was full of the gossip. This other monk was was informing me about all the gossip, the monks monastic gossip, which I didn't understand hardly at all. It made no sense to me. They're coming, you know, into a country and they talk about Tommy Mahanikai and they, you know, it couldn't, they didn't have a clue what that meant. And they're talking about salt and pepper or... <laughs> whatever. It didn't uh, register. Then the I gathered there was some, some big issue going on between these two sects. Because either the, in Thailand, uh, they, uh, <coughs> there's these two divisions of Theravada Buddhism. And the, the, the main one, the big one, is Mahanikai, which means, Maha always means great or big. And, uh, and then Tamayut was a reform sect, uh, sect established under King Mangkut. So uh, Wat Mahatat was very, and then the abbot of Wat Mahatat had been arrested and put in prison. And this was all a, a plot at the time to get rid of him because he would be the next Sangharaja. So they, so this is a story I got, that, that Tamayu arranged some kind of scandalous false claims against him. And then there was this terrible riot in Bangkok where he was arrested and his robe stripped from him and put into a prison. And so, and this of course made the Mahanikai very angry. So I got all this, oh that's terrible, you know. Terrible, so I got this biased Jonas view of Tamiyut. <coughs> I thought, I'm not going to have anything to do with Tamiyut. And then after, after so many months I, I, I decided to ordain, but I didn't know where to to ordain. So, and and what my taught was like living in the middle of a marketplace. It's very, it's right in it's an old part of Bangkok near the Grand Palace, and very noisy uh, place. And I also knew a lot of people at the time in Bangkok. And I knew if I ordained in Bangkok, I would have you know there are too many people would come to see me. So I decided to seek a teacher outside. And this led me to eventually I stayed at a Tamayut Wat, Wat Bawarniway. And then I heard the other side of the story. Because the monk there told me all the horrors of how bad Mahanikai monks were. And they carried money and they drank Ovaltine in the evening and did despicable things. And so, and I didn't quite get the point then either, you know. <coughs> so, uh, anyway, these were strong views that one subjected to, you know, in, in any 
in everything, whether it's politics or religion. So it's interesting that when I met Ajahn Chah, he was he was, he was, he followed a Tamayu teacher, but was of the Mahanikar sect. So I think that suited me quite well. <laughs> and so the, the great teacher Ajahn Man, Acharya Man, had, who died many years before I ever came to Thailand, was was uh, one of the great uh, meditation teachers, a great monks of Thailand. And uh, many of his disciples were becoming increasingly well-known at this time in, the, in 1966. Tanajan Mahabua was one of the really famous ones even then, and he's still going strong now. <coughs> Ajahn Chah said his association with Ajahn Man was very brief because he'd, he first trained as a in the in the kind of village monastery, and then he decided he and, and he, he studied the, what they call the Bariati Tama or the the more academic side of, of of what they teach when you first ordain is when he was about twenty twenty years old. So uh, then he he after four years or so, and this is, I vaguely remember I can't remember the exact details, but he. He decided that that he wanted to practice meditation, so he went around Thailand looking for various teachers. Uh, he went to, I know he went spent time in Lopebury at some with some teacher there, and, and there was a a kind of uh, eccentric one in in Uborn that he stayed with him, but he more or less drifted around to different teachers. And and anyway, by the time he had insight, uh, he met Ajahn Man. And uh, and so he only spent, I think, a couple of nights at Ajahn Man's monastery, but during that time, Ajahn Man kind of affirmed his insight. But Lung Po Chah also liked the Tamayut style, the fact that they, the Vinaya was was very much part of the, the practice. It was a kind of complete lifestyle where so much of the meditation in Thailand was taught more like techniques and could be quite separate from the actual life, monastic lifestyle. So like the Mahasi Sayadaw style, I found was it didn't matter if you were a lay person or a monk, you could do it. You know, it, that wasn't because it's a, it's a very clearly defined technique <coughs> that that needn't be, you know, could work just as well for a layperson. Then, uh, but Lung Po Cha's approach was mindfulness through monastic daily life. So with him, it was a whole lifestyle. It was a way of living your life, developing this awareness, this reflectiveness. It, the difference between being institutionalized and conditioned into being a monk and being and learning to use monastic form for awareness. And this was interesting, interested me, because one felt so many of the monks in Thailand were 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 kind of programmed into thinking this way and this was right and this was wrong and and uh, and they because you. When you ad ad when you take a religious form, you you learn the the uh, doctrines, the customs, and all that. But to reflect on that process, because even when you learn the scriptures and learn Pali and all that, you still you still if you know if you're not a reflect if you don't have a reflective mind, one who contemplates things in in your own mind, then you you tend to take scriptural teaching uh, as kind of in a dogmatic way. You don't apply it to your own experience. You define it and, and take sides maybe with various ways of interpreting it. Also, the, the 
Lumpacha didn't encourage much study. And I think he saw when he met me that that, uh, that was the last thing I needed to do, because I'd been, I'd been through the university systems in the United States and, and, ha and was a real kind of obsessed reader. I was like addicted to literature. So, I mean, wherever I went, I had a book with me or I couldn't, you know, I, I'd feel nervous and ill at ease. So when I, when I was a layman, I always had to have a book in order to relax and feel at ease. So he said, no books. <laughs> so I didn't tell him that. I mean, I think he just picked it up intuitively. And, of course, the big question always is with people. In Thailand, they'd always say, how could he teach you? If you? Because at the time that we met, I couldn't speak Thai and he couldn't speak English. So we always associate learning with language, don't we? You have to learn Buddhism. You have to have somebody who speaks English if, if you're an English speaker. Or you have to learn their language. You have to learn Thai in order to be taught. So that's the, that's the conventional way of thinking about learning, isn't it? The assumptions we make about learning. But Ajahn Chah always put a reflective tone onto that by saying, he says, well, uh, Sumato learned through the Dhamma, language of Dhamma. And then the Thais say, what language is that? <laughs> they didn't quite get it because uh, some would, but, but they, the the language that I really learned from wasn't, a, wasn't English or Thai, but through living, through awakening and, and learning from just the experience of being conscious, having a human body, being conscious, having feelings, thoughts, greed, hatred, and delusion. And these are common, these are common human things. These are not cultural things, you know. This is, this is what we all share, a common human uh, problem or condition. Now, I don't remember exactly how I felt then, but I do remember... Uh, feeling an immediate confidence with him, a sense of trust. Uh, I met him through a series of coincidences. Or, some people want to see it, maybe it was because I was meant to be with Ajahn Chah. It was in, in, the, in the stars. Or maybe it was just good luck, or coincidence, or whatever. But it is interesting how, how when uh, one's life, uh, that one experience, uh, you can experience various things that, that you can't trace to, to you know, something that, that is part of what you're expecting out of life. Meeting a teacher like Ajahn Chah was, wasn't what I was expecting at the time. I'd been to all the other teachers, and I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't that I didn't like them or I was even critical of them, but nothing clicked, you know, the, the magic didn't happen or whatever it is. Uh, so there was nothing, nothing, you know, in terms of feeling they weren't good enough for me. It's just uh, I, I didn't feel I wanted to be with them. So... Uh, I went on my own way the first year as a Samanera and just kind of erratically, just by chance, ordained in Nongkai up in the northeast of Thailand and spent a year uh, just teaching myself. And then the following year, I met this Devaduta monk who you all heard about, the Pratsumai. Now, Pratsumai was, this is, I had, I'd had these insights during the first year. Uh, 
that I was a Samanera. And in the sight were very clear, and I knew I needed to go to a teacher. I needed a teacher. Before that, I didn't think I needed one. And so I, I thought, I can, you know, Buddhism, it's in the books, and, it, and it's, uh, you know, self-realization, self-learning. You don't need a teacher for that. But then, during that first year, I could see uh, living alone for a whole year with not, nobody but yourself, you learn a lot. And I could see how, you know, I, I actually needed to learn how to, I, was, I had a tremendous resentment towards authority. And I think Ma Americans struggle with this because we live in a society where we were very idealistic about everybody being equal. And uh, the idea of hierarchy for an American is, is considered evil. You know, all hierarchical structures are wrong, and uh, this sense of equality, egalitarianism, is the ideal. So this was the mindset of egalitarianism. And of course, on a practical level, it isn't that way at all, is it? Somebody has to be the boss or the in charge of this or that. And and, and uh, because of the confusion around it, I always found it difficult in jobs that I held and in situations because around authority because uh, it was never clearly defined, one's relationship, even to one's parents. is all, everybody's the same, we're all equal, nobody's better than anyone else. And that's not the way it is either. I mean, in America, there's so much arrogance and conceit and racial prejudices and all this kind of thing were rampant. And yet the illusion was based on uh, uh, this ideal. Well, it's interesting to s observe that in your mind, isn't it? Just to see what comes up, what, what threatens, what frightens you when you're in um, a Thai monastery where there's hierarchical structure. And you've got an egalitarian mindset. Now, I could see the, the tendency was to, first of all, to criticize the Thai structure, or to look down on it, or to, because, uh, you know, you think your own is much better, and then you com then the way you see theirs is in comparison to that. If it's hierarchical, it's n it couldn't be really right or good. But because of this reflective trait in Buddhism, this is the essence of Buddhist teaching, isn't it? Sati Panya, Sati Sampatanya, mindfulness. I began to see, you know, what threatened me. I was afraid of authority, actually. Anyone that had power over me or any, you know, considered themselves better than me or superior or whatever, I felt threatened by them. So I could reflect on that fear of authority. And I could see also a kind of insidious conceit and stubbornness in myself that I wouldn't be able to ever get beyond if I didn't surrender to some other, to somebody else. If I just manipulated my Buddhist life in Thailand according to what I want, what I felt like that it was I felt comfortable with, and I could do that in Thailand. Many Western monks do that. They can, you can manipulate the system for your own advantage. So uh, you see monks just doing what they want. You know, being able to get by so that they, they don't have to experience these threatening situations. Or they, they just take what they want from the system. So I had the insight that, that, I, you know, that I wouldn't, I, I would never, I would get to a point, but I would never get beyond it. I'd never really see clearly until I learn humility.
So, uh, so then I remember making a wish that I would meet a teacher because, because I was I hadn't ordained I hadn't taken the bhikkhu training yet but I was I was going to you know, that in the year of 1967. So while well, I made that wish, as soon as I made that wish, almost immediately this monk appeared, Ajahn Chah's disciple. <laughs> Coincidence, or I don't know, whatever you want to think it. But it, this is this is the truth. <laughs> and and he was uh, he was about my age, and I was then 32 or 33. Uh, and he could speak English. And he'd been in the Thai Navy during the Korean War. I'd been in the American Navy during the Korean War. So you're the same age. I hadn't spoken English for months and months and months. He could speak English. So if you haven't spoken your native tongue for months and months and months and you have the first opportunity, it's like a burst dam. You, can, you can't stop. I mean, I must have... I thought I frightened him at first, you know, because it's like having diarrhea, you know. <laughs> There's no way you can stop it. But anyway, he he stayed with me at this monastery for a while and and eventually convinced me that once I ordained, I should go to Ajahn Chah. So I, my preceptor, when he gave me Upasampada, uh, agreed with that and sent me off to stay with Ajahn Chah. And at that time, Ajahn Chah was not well known in Bangkok, by even by Thais, not to mention the expatriate community. He was not one of the teachers that were, were on the list of great teachers at that time. He, but he was increasingly well known in the Isan or Northeast Thailand. And it's strange because the Isan was the last place I wanted to live my life. That's the poorest place. I always imagine living down on the coast, on the beaches, where all the resorts are now. And I had this romantic image of being a monk sitting under a coconut palm tree on a white sand beach. And instead, I spent 10 years in the Ethan. The other thing, the, the, the thing that really impressed me with Alun Pochar was his emphasis on teaching the Four Noble Truths. And I hadn't come across this before. The other teachers. I hadn't either picked it up. I mean, there was always a problem around language because I didn't know Thai. But like the, like so many of the meditation, the meditation techniques I'd learned were all based on Abhidhamma teachings, which I f wasn't. I found very boring, actually. So, and that's the last thing I wanted to learn was all these, all these, this incredibly complex Abhidhamma. So I, um, I remember going to an Abhidhamma teacher in, uh, in Bangkok uh, who, who gave lectures on Abhidhamma in English. And I was never so bored in my life. And, and uh, I thought, I can't. That is not what I want from this religion. <coughs> so, so when, uh, but the Four Noble Truths, I'd had a lot of insight in already through my first year, just learning from a little book. So, and I found this an incredibly powerful teaching, very simple in its form, the four, the one, two, three, four, that's easy enough. And, uh, and it pointed to suffering, dukkha, and I had plenty of that. There's no shortage. I didn't have to go look for it. And so I thought, this is this is you know this is what I'm looking for. Uh, and Lung Po Cha's whole emphasis was was having insight into these truths through living life 
in, uh, in the monastery. So you, you had this Vinaya training. They were very strict in, um, around the Vinaya, which is the discipline. So, and this I needed, because I don't like Vinaya, actually. I hate discipline. And this does not come easy for me. To Discipline is not something I gravitate towards. And I've always avoided it if I could. And so, uh, I, but I knew that I needed that kind of training. I needed a teacher and I needed discipline because I was not a well, I was not a disciplined person. When I became one, I was, I was like very scattered in every way. So, so I, I had, didn't seem to have any kind of boundaries to, to behavior even. I just follow impulses. I, I, I'm quite impulsive by nature, as you probably know by now. <laughs> so so it's this impulsivity is strong. So to, to reflect that, you need something. You need something that, that you're not in control of. Like, I could always make up my own rules and put my boundaries according to the way I like them. But I knew I needed something, from, from, not from me, but from, from something else. And so this was a traditional Vinaya, as, as interpreted from the scripture. Uh, and the way they did that, or kept the, that discipline and taught it in Watpapong. So that was... That was, it was four noble truths as the as the meditation and the reflection and then the vinaya. It seemed to me to be perfect in terms of what was being offered. The opportunity. Uh, living with Ajahn Chah also, many many monks have said, "Oh, he was very fierce," and. Uh, and they said, he was really fierce, weren't you frightened of him? And, and I actually don't remember him as being fierce. You know, he's, he could be stern, and he, but he had, but fierce, you know, being frightened. I never felt like a fear. I felt respect, the kind of fear that comes with respect, not out of just because I'm frightened of him personally, or because he did things to frighten me. But he, he, seemed, he was a, a man who had a, a kind of balance. He, had, he, was a, he could be authoritative, but he could also be completely relaxed and, and friendly. He was someone you could feel at ease with, and you could also feel respect for. So there was a, he had, it seemed to, I found it a balance for me where I, I felt respect. I could, I could perform the, the traditional uh, postures and do all the right things, but I also, on other occasions, felt very at ease with him because he was very much at ease with himself. He seemed to be a very happy human being. He had a, a great sense of humor, and uh, this I found. Uh, essential for me. One ha in the monastic life, remember, it helps enormously to be able to laugh at yourself because we're all slightly ridiculous anyway. And just, be, just being human <coughs> and the pretensions that we, we have from our cultures, isn't it? The cultures that we come from, the social background and, and all that is the pretensions of this contemplate the pretentiousness of European culture. And of course in Thailand, being a Buddhist country, Lumpur Chao was very good at poking fun at the pretensions of the Thais. And so and yet it wasn't cruel. It wasn't it wasn't cruelty, but it was it was a laughing that would you could join in with, even if it was at me, I could join in the laughter. I was never, I never felt 
it was humiliating me or, or, or that, but I felt, you know, what the way he could direct this was that I would be able to laugh at my own stupidity or stubbornness or whatever. Because once you can laugh at yourself, then it, it's, uh, you know, you're quite willing to change, you know, that you, can, you begin to see things clearly. Where if you're just being punished for being stubborn or stupid or whatever, then you just feel humiliated and rejected and, and oppressed by the system. So in this, this way, the, the sense of, of having this laughter was, was uh, you know, one could be, one, one felt that, uh, you know, I felt I could be stupid or stubborn or difficult and uh, that and that and learn from it. It wasn't just a demand to try to be perfect at all times. You know, where you're you're kind of constantly on the edge of trying to fit into the system. So you you're just always concerned about every movement and how you look and whatnot. So that was I found that helpful because I'm so. The, social background is one of appearance you know and to to you have to look good and you feel terribly guilty if you if you if you don't or if somebody if you make a mistake then you feel very guilty or ashamed of yourself and and you try to cover it up or hide it yeah, I remember my my past. There was a tremendous effort to hide mistakes because I, I would be punished or humiliated for making mistakes. Within the system uh, with Lung Po Cha in the monastery, I never felt that. I felt that that making mistakes was part of the training. And then the attitude was to reflect on that, to learn from it, and to see. So I would get some of my stubbornness would appear. You know, I found a lot of the way they did things were, I thought, I thought over the top and uh, too much and much ado about nothing. And uh, my critical mind would, and, and uh, I could get very critical. And they just follow rules, you know, they're just being institutionalized through rules. They're just rule followers. There's no mindfulness in it. And I'd get on my high horse. And then I'd do something, and maybe I, I could be quite rebellious. Because this, this strict vinya, and that was, I found it suffocating at first. I felt squashed by it. It was like, a, you know, this always these rules where, you know, you had to learn. And I was always doing something wrong, always... Uh, you know, I, even the way I walk, they criticize. And being big in a, in a country where everybody's small, you know, you can't hide in a crowd. Sore thumb on all occasions, you know. You s there's a picture, a photograph, famous photograph of me with all the monks sitting in a row, you know, all these Thai monks, and then suddenly this one goes... <laughs> <laughs> so that reflecting on on the we began to to develop a sense of trust in the system because I I I liked learning that way. It wasn't that I I was stubborn so stubborn that I didn't want to change, but I had to see it. I had to. If they just said, you're being stubborn and you shouldn't, and then humiliate me, I would have, you know, that would have, wouldn't have helped, and maybe even more stubborn. So if they just said, you shouldn't be, Bhikkhu shouldn't be stubborn, uh, you, uh, and, and then scold me, then I thought, it was like, you know, being back in school. Parents would say this, you know, and you get scolded by the authorities. But this, the stubbornness would be reflected, and then Ajahn Chah had a good way of, 
of, of getting me to look at what I was actually feeling. My own resistance, uh, rebelliousness, the sense of being suffocated, the um, paranoia, just when you're in a place where most of the time you don't know what the heck is going on, and you don't know what they're saying, you know, I could get paranoid. So I, and I, then I'd be, but I could begin to see how I created these states. So, in some ways, even though it was very strict monastery, it, I, it was quite a lot of fun actually living there. Ajahn Chah was uh, was a, a monk you could have fun with. And he wasn't a kind of remote Ajahn that he just bowed to, but he actually he would take me on. We went uh, visited all the great Tamayud Ajahns one year, uh, and then we uh, and he'd take me to the most boring things sometimes. Where You'd have to sit up all night in a mosquito-infested cellar while he was telling jokes to everybody and they were all laughing. And I would just sit there feeling angry and annoyed. And they all have, they, they, they all have fun when they have, have these get-togethers. Uh, they chew the betel nut, smoke cigarettes, and 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 tell jokes. And Lung Pong Cha was very was a very funny person. So everybody's having a good time. How would you feel in a situation like that, where there's a lot of mosquitoes too biting you? <laughs> so sometimes the only thing you look forward to is when they pass out the sweet drinks or something. And you take to eating anything they offered, and Ovaltine or anything solid was forbidden. And they'd pass, they'd usually pass out these laxative fruits with a kind of bitter gall nut that grows in, in Asia. And, and then they, they uh, and you eat it and it, it, it's a laxative. And somehow this was allowed, you were allowed to eat this. And so they would, uh, they'd mix some people would get quite fancy with it, <laughs> mix it with chilies and sugar, things like this, make kind of salad out of it. And it tasted so good, you'd, you'd eat a lot of it. <laughs> and then find yourself moving very quickly out of the salad. But it is, isn't it, when you think of the, the kind of, uh, in Isan, in Northeast Thailand also, uh, I liked the people a lot. The people were, uh, it was a beautiful culture in its own right. And it's a, it's a rice growing, you know, they're, they're, they're all farmers, rice farmers. And uh, they're quite, and the Isan is, n is very famous for a very, saintly monks, enlightened masters. So many of the great teachers, Ajahn Man, and so many of them were from Northeast Thailand. Because uh, like, unlike other parts of Thailand, it's probably you know, it's the, called the Siberia of Thailand. It's the least desirable place to live in Thailand, is the Isan. And it's rather flat and, and uh, not terribly interesting scenically, and uh, poor, uh, and backward in those days. But now it's changed a lot. But the, the people themselves, the villagers, obviously having a good monk like Ajahn Chah around had a good effect on the, on the people, on the villagers in the, in the area. And Lung Po Chah was also teaching 
rice farmers how to meditate. And this was interesting because uh, talking to many Thais about meditation, the generally their feeling was that meditation was for monks and uh, that you had to have a certain a lot of accumulated virtues to be able to meditate, which the average lay person didn't have, and especially if you're a farmer, and you're probably even illiterate, can't even read and write. So then uh, uh, they would say it wasn't till they met some of these farmers that I got to know said they they uh, never thought they could ever meditate. You know that was never an aspiration in their lives because they that we're farmers and we we can't do that. You monks should be doing that. I said, well, what happens when the monk gives a talk? They go to the the village monastery, the village wat, and they say, well, we don't ever understand what they're saying, but it's it's supposed to be very meritorious to sit in the same room and listen to a monk reading Pali. So that, that's what they were... And actually, you know, that's not a bad idea, actually. Better than doing most things we do. <laughs> Sitting, uh, listening to a monk reading Pali. But it's not the way to... to uh, but it's also giving the wrong message, you know, that, that Buddhism is only for a special elite, the special people under special conditions. And so Ajahn Chah gave this message very clearly that, that it's, you know, whether you were literate or literate, whether you had a PhD or whatever, it didn't make any difference. Meditation was not dependent on that. Whether you were a farmer or a, a king or queen of Thailand, meditation was, was if we, one was interested, one could learn that. And we were you know, and and if one is, and if you're interested, then you ask to be taught. So, Lung Po Chao really had a large following in Uborn Province at that time of of uh, village people, and uh, they were, and of course they, some of them were very good at this, very wise, had many much insight through uh, practicing in the way that Lung Po Chao encouraged, which was the development of awareness. Now, with village people, you know, village people, because if you're not educated very much and you have a lot of faith, you can do devotional practices much better. Like learning jhanas and things like this are much easier if, you, if you're not well educated and you don't know a lot about the scriptures and the Abhidhamma. Because once you're educated, then you, you, your mind goes into an analysis, analyzing things, comparing. So just think of our own, our, you know, our own, my own cultural background was, was uh, education was the ultimate thing. The whole pressure from early childhood uh, was to increase my knowledge, learning through studying in school. So I, I developed a, a critical mind, a discriminative mind, uh, analytical, rational, logical, and I was a very skeptical person. So doubt and skepticism were the big, big, uh, one of the uh, one of the big problems for me in in the religious life. Why I couldn't relate to Christianity because. They, the demands they made to believe in things were beyond me. I couldn't do it. Couldn't believe because I was told that, that, that this is the truth. Where if, you ha if you're from, say, the, the rural areas of Thailand, where, and you've had a good, and, and Buddhism is your cultural base also, so you have a lot of Faith already there culturally, you're you're in tune with the with the whole structure. And if you're not well educated in questioning and thinking and doubting, then what the teacher says carries a lot of weight. So Ajahn Chah says, "Watch your breath," and, and they could do it. 
They, <laughs> he could, he, you know, they wouldn't question it. And, and the, so they, Ajahn Chah would tell him to do this and then that, and they'd do it. And they would not find it, you know, the, the doubting mind would not arise. So it was much, and of course, Jhanic, the jhanas are based on a positive sense. Of negative, negative states wipe them out, destroy them immediately. They've got to have faith and believe and have confidence in that. And in a teacher, so you don't question, does Ajahn Chah know what he's doing? Or I don't, he said to do this, but I don't think he's right because the scripture says this. They don't have that problem. They just do what he says, and they get on many had very good results from that. Where most of us Western monks, you see, now uh, contemplate your breath. Well, how do you do that? And should I? <laughs> and what's the point of it? And and uh, what will I get out of it? And and uh, then all the problem whether you should do get the jhanas or not, or do vipassana straight on or and then the mahayana and the hinayana and and all because we've read all these books you know we've got, we have all kinds of views and opinions ideas about it but one thing that that, that so lungpo cha never encouraged me to because i didn't have the devotional basis but i had a a, a reflective mind. It, I, I realize that, that, that all my life I've been quiet. I like contemplating experience. Even as a child, I can see, and even in childhood, I had. I like to contemplate or wonder about life and what is the purpose of it and what's it all about. So then, this this uh, this trait lends itself very well to uh, the Four Noble Truths reflecting on suffering, its causes, cessation, and the path, the way of non-suffering. So this is our heritage from this, uh, I felt I received, you know, the very best that one could ever expect to get in life in terms of the teaching I mean the Buddha teaching it itself, but then as it was manifested in the in the form and life of Ajahn Chah, because uh, over the years, just by uh, developing that, then uh, of course one proves it to oneself. Something you know for yourself is not. I'm not a devotee of Ajahn Chah or a cult figure of his. You know, I, uh, towards Ajahn Chah I have what they call gratitude. Katanyu Gatavati. And uh, because of his compassion. But he, he didn't want us to be, make him into a cult figure. He was never pointing to himself saying how you know, that he was a Sotapanna or an Arahant, or he never, never tried to, you know, whenever one wanted to, to uh, find out where he was at, you know, I don't know how many people ask if he's an Arahant, and he, he, he would, you know, he could turn it so you, you look at what you're asking, who's asking it, what do you want to know? So you're, you're going, you're pointing in the, he's pointing in the right direction, not by answering yes or no to uh, that kind of a question. So I felt what I got from that 10 years was definitely a, a very good foundation in practice and in Vinaya. So by the time I came to England, I had ten, only ten wasas, ten years as a bhikkhu. And, and now I look back and I think, oh, I was crazy to come here. 
because I was such a... I'd only had 10 years. And now we wouldn't think of putting a 10-year monk in such a position. But the, the thing that the thing that I trusted was I had a confidence in in the practice uh, firmly established during that ten years. So and I, and Nung Po Cha obviously realized that because he's the one that encouraged me to come here. And this is uh, this uh, and that of course means that once you have established that awareness, that confidence in awareness then, you know, what happens to you, then you can reflect on it, you learn from it. So uh, I've been in England now 20, over 26 years, so that all these years, you know, have been also a point of learning, and learning from the things that happened to me. So you get praise and blame and Things go well and they fall apart and, and uh, people come and people go and ordain and disrobe and, and the weather is sunny and then it's rainy. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we had a hurricane back in the 80s so <laughs> and uh, on and on like this. Uh, but, the, but the reflectiveness is... is, is is always the way. Never to make the 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 conditioned realm the your object, your refuge. So like a monastery, a teacher, because eventually the teacher, Ajahn Chah, got very ill and became uh, incapacitated for ten years. He couldn't say a word and was nursed until he died in nineteen 92. So the refuge then is not in, in, in a teacher or in the scriptures or in, the, in a monastery or in a religious tradition or Vinaya or anything like that, but in the awareness. And that awareness you realize through, through, um, you know, it's so ordinary, so natural to us that we, we ignore it, we overlook it all the time. So this is where this continuous reminding, awakening, reflecting on, you know, so that when things do happen, tragedies happen, and you feel this or feel upset by. A, a relation relating to somebody, whatever you can use these very things. These are part of the path. These are developing. These are cultivating the way. Pawana is the fourth noble truth. If you, if you have the confidence to reflect and learn, not on ideas of how things should be, but on the, what what you're actually experiencing, what it's like. It's like this without claiming it, without adding to it in any way. Like if, if I'm feeling sad, as soon as I say I am sad, then I'm, I made it more than what it is, isn't it? But if I'm aware of the sadness, so this, this is pre-verbal, the intuition or awareness is, is pre-verbal, you know, it's before thought arises. So sadness, if the sadness is present, the awareness of it. The awareness doesn't claim it. The habit tendency, the cultural conditioning, the, the, you know, I am sad and I, should, I don't like being sad, I want to be happy, then it becomes a big problem for us. So it's in this learning to trust in just this simple uh, uh, natural ability we all share. It's, it's not special quality. 
that you know that I have more of it than you do, or I'm. It's just how aware, how how you remember, and how willing you are to to learn from that. So I stop here. People keep telling me I give, I talk too much. Thank <laughs> you.